Hello and welcome to In Orbit. It's a podcast exploring how technology from space is empowering a better world. Brought to you by the satellite applications Catapult. I'm your host, Dallas Campbell. And in this series, we'll be in conversation with some of the finest minds in the country, exploring all the ways that the UK is using space to make huge differences to our everyday lives, as well as gaining a better understanding of its role in shaping and sustaining our planet for the future. In today's episode, we will be exploring sustainable land use and how can we balance the needs of local communities, businesses, ecosystems, to ensure that our land is used in a way that benefits everyone. I'm joined in the studio by Christian Rossi. He's the geospatial science lead here at the Satellite Applications Catapult, and remotely by Tim Hopkin, founder of LandApp, and by Donna Lindsay. She's the strategic market lead of environment and sustainability at Ordnance Survey. The population of the UK is projected to increase by 3.2% inside the next decade, from an estimated 67.1 million in mid-2020 to 69.2 million in mid-2030. We are growing into a finite amount of land that needs to support the future of our species and our planet, from growing our food and nurturing our biodiversity to providing foundations for our homes. So how do we adopt sustainable land use practices? How do we improve the well-being of local communities? And how do we protect the environment for future generations? The answer lies in technology and collaboration. Welcome, Tim, Donna, Christian, it's lovely to have you. We're going to talk a little bit about sustainable land use, if that's okay. So, Tim, first, Land App. I've had a little scoot around the Land App website. It's terrific and beautifully done. But tell us what it is and why it's important. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, I guess a bit of background story, which is all very relevant. So I actually am on our 90-acre family farm, just south of Guildford in Surrey. I am fourth generation on the farm. And it was becoming obvious to me when I was about 18 that the probability of us being able to keep the farm if we didn't do something interesting was unlikely. And as I started to try and work out what we were going to do on the farm, I found the concept of permaculture and regenerative agriculture about 12 or 13 years ago. Oh, it's just land what, system what, what culture? What was the first? What culture? Permaculture. Permaculture. Yeah, so it means permanent culture. So it's how do you design land use systems to go on in perpetuity, kind of the right. antithesis to let's cut all the forest down. Okay. So it's about smart land use decisions. So being brought up on the farm, I thought that'd be practical to apply, that those ideas would be practical to apply to the farm. So I studied this, tried to apply that logic to the farm and found it was unbelievably difficult. I was lucky enough at that sort of time to travel around the world a couple of times and realised how unfortunately people were managing land everywhere in the world. We're very good at destroying stuff, not so good at putting it back. And I was perplexed that there was no tool to support land managers to make smart land use decisions. And so that was where LandUp came from. Um, the idea of how can we en masse support people to be funded to make good decisions through a digital mean. Huh. And so that's where Land App came from. And that's kind of the core thesis that we stand on. And the objective is to transition land use to best practice. Got it. Just very, 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 very briefly, Tim, I'm a farmer. What am I going to do with the app? I press, I press, I press it. Then what happens? Just qu quickly. Yeah. So you come in, 
if, you, if you're a farmer, you've got a nine-digit code called an SBI number, single business identifier. You type that into the land app and you get a digital twin of your farm. So, so basically type in that number, Dallas, and then you get a digital twin of your farm. So you get a digital copy of your farm. So it takes the data from the RPA, plonks it on your land app map, and from there you can see all the information about your holding. So all the designations you intersect, uh, the opportunities available, the funding opportunities available. So we just do all of that as soon as you come in and create that digital twin. And then if you feel inclined, you can then click another couple of buttons and you can pull in all the ordnance survey master map data. So you get an even better quality view of your farm. We're going to talk a little bit about digital twins. I talk a lot about digital twins. It's one of these things that come, ideas that comes up again and again. So I don't want to, I think we understand what a digital twin is. Amazing. And so you can bring in ordnance survey stuff as well and, and really understand what your land is doing and where where it's going and what opportunities are out there yeah yeah exactly right and we we've done a couple of other things where you can then take that data click another button and it pushes all that data against satellite data and returns back when did you last plow the field is it arable or is it grass Um, and we've got click another button and it shows you all of the interventions you could make on your farm so where you should put pollinator mixes woodland wetland wet grass so once you've got that digital twin, you can learn a lot about it. And that's basically what we Amazing, do. amazing. If only we had someone from the Ordnance Survey here who could bring oh, it at this what point. what a surprise. Hey, Donna, <laughs> tell us. Hey, you, Dallas. You've got a big job title, Strategic Market Lead Environment and Sustainability at Ordnance Survey. So we, everyone's heard of Ordnance Survey, of course. But yep. what do you do there? What's your, what's your role in Compass day to day? So my core role and I guess my core mission is to really make sure we can utilise the core skill sets at Ordnance Survey because what we do actually is, is to provide people with a, with a very simplified view of a very complex world. Okay, so, so what we're trying to do is really see how we can use those core skill sets where we can map out the landscape and tell people what's there into core insights to help them deal with some of these sustainability challenges because we're facing some huge challenges coming down the line. You know, we've got seven years left to try and address some of these core issues around climate. So how can we as Ordnance Survey really understand what we should be doing to support our core customers within that space? So that's what I do. So I look at what we're doing now. I look at what we should be doing with our customers. I look at those emergent markets. I look at things like what Tim's doing and seeing how we can pivot in our core skills to really support these, these areas. And one of my core passions and missions really is one of the reasons why I came into Ordnance Survey is really to, to see how we can bridge the worlds between Earth observation data and geospatial data, because the two don't talk together terribly well. Um, we have a load of wonderful science within the, the space community that really needs to be out in the hands of our end users. So we're looking at how we as Ordnance Survey can really help facilitate that and how we can help coordinate things, not just in the UK basis, but on a global scale too. Great. Thank you very much. Uh, Christian's in the room with me. I, mean, I want to talk about this idea of sustainable land use and sort of what we mean. I mean, obviously, things like climate we understand. But what are the big challenges that we're facing because one thing i've noticed about planet earth is that it's not getting any bigger it's sort of remaining the same size and that in itself is problematic for yeah. growing populations no, absolutely there's so many so many so many things such as desertification mm. so um which is a growing trend in some some regions of the world or uh, land degradation it's another it's another thing that is happening in, in some patches and uh, as a scientist myself in, uh, in remote sensing or earth observation, we can actually look from above. We're talking of 600 kilometers above the earth mm. and looking down and seeing how those trends uh, 
trends, that's a good term. So how the, what is the evolution of, of our land in time uh, and how uh, is degrading or is improving? So, you know, there is also an improve. So uh, as human, we try to improve our lives sometimes for with afforestation for example right and uh, so seeing these is is feasible and this is what i am what i'm researching so desertification we don't have that problem in the uk but certainly globally that's a big problem i'm just in in the uk specifically as a farmer what are the what are the big things i mean you know you talked about growing up on a farm and and the problems of the future being that we face like what are the what were the problems that that it kind of motivated you to start this project? I think the biggest thing, honestly, is cash flow for farmers. So on a farm, if you do amazing sustainability stuff, you very rarely can actually sell your products with a premium price on them unless you've got a very good brand that you've built up as well. And most farmers aren't brand builders. They just sell products. So at the moment, one of the biggest problems is that when you sell your products into the market, you don't get a premium on having done good stuff. So if you've protected the river systems from agrochemicals, if you've connected the ecosystems through your farm together, you don't make any money from that. And so you have this problem. You've got a bit of a race to the bottom because all the farms are competing. They're trying to lower their costs because they don't get paid a premium. So the problem that we have, the biggest problem is farmers are not fairly remunerated for the services of their current assets. So if you're doing great stuff, that the water company fundamentally gets a benefit from, you're protecting the river system really well. The water company doesn't give you any money for that. You know, if you're connecting all of your ecosystems together, the food retailer doesn't give you any money for that. So farmers, unfortunately, or land managers generally, are very rarely remunerated properly for the good stuff that they do. And the problem with that, it causes them to do bad stuff because they don't fundamentally lose out from doing that. So there's a lack of transparency in the value chain that means that, fair remuneration is not transacted that's the biggest problem for farmers that's interesting donna can I, well donna and tim really can you tell us a little bit yep. about how the sort of connection between earth observation and, and satellite data mm. how that can change things how that can help us be more sustainable with with land use and i don't know donna maybe you've uh, got you'll, you'll have some good examples yeah yeah, yeah, no, no, I've got, I've got a couple of great examples, actually. So um, so it's really interesting, the point that Tim's making about that visibility and transparency between, you know, what a, what a company thinks they're buying and actually what they're doing. So one of the things we're looking at at the moment is, is on a global basis. So we've got this thing called the Supply Chain Data Partnership, which is a global partnership between ourselves, Unilever, Deloitte, Esri and Planet and the Stockholm Environment Institute. And we're exploring how we can actually embed transparency back into supply chain. So we're using satellite data to enable us to do the observation and monitoring and identification of um, these core assets within the commodity supply chain. When you say core assets, what, what do you mean by core assets? Well, so these are, these are things like your, your mills, your farms, you know, these key things that, that people, so say, for example, Unilever, through their procurement and buying process, they would obtain um, soy beans from a specific location. But the problem is, they, because they don't really know where those locations are, right. they then can't then mobilise the monitoring that we can do from space. So we need to be able to identify these things accurately. And that's where location comes into play. So this is where we're playing a key role within this global supply chain to understand where these things are actually actually located on the planet. It's like putting a pin in the map. And then once we've done that, we can then enable any form of monitoring capability to be applied. And this is satellite data because satellites are fantastic. We've got thousands of these things flying around the planet every day. 
doing wonderful monitoring stuff through all different parts of the spectrum that we can and cannot see. But actually, unless it knows what it's monitoring, it can't actually tell you, you know, if things are going in the right direction, you know, who's responsible for it, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where the power of the combination of geospatial data, so map data, and um, Earth observation data can really bring to bear because the, the, the map data gives the context that is missing from the Earth observation data. And Earth observation data can tell us where... Just, can you just make that distinction between the two? How are they different? The different what's the difference yeah. between map They're data and, because Earth, a, a, and Earth observation yeah, data? Yeah, so the map data will tell you the name of, of the location. It will tell you what it is. It will tell you what type of feature it is, etc., Whereas the Earth observation data, it can tell you things like I'm a forest, I'm a I'm a piece of land, etc. But it can actually tell you I'm a piece of land called, you know, Joe Boggs Farm up the road. I'm this piece of road here. So actually, for people to actually really act with the data, they need to understand the context. It's really hard for people to see. Otherwise, it's just like an abstract view of the world. You know, you might know if it, you know, this this field is greener over here or this. You know, this tree has, um, you know, a potential um, issue, etc. But actually, until you really know where it is, it's really hard to, to pin it all down and find those people who, who are the responsible actors for making it better. So that's where Tim's app is really powerful because the farmers actually put all the field names in, into the application. You know, they know where all the things are. They've got the contextual information around the map, um, as well as using the, these um, Earth observation capabilities as well. Yeah, with, with satellite, we, uh, with Earth observation, we derive what is called land cover. So what's actually in any part of the world? Do we have a forest? Do we have urban areas? Do we have a crop? Which type of crop? But we cannot derive what is called land use. Mm. So how, uh, how this is then, then used is which practices, as, the, as Donna was mentioning, what is actually going on over there? Because we can have a picture of what is there, but not what is who, who owns the area. Right. So Earth Observation is telling us the cover and geospatial data maps uh, or databases, uh, they have these other information so we can mix them and create a complete picture. Oh, that's, so, so the people who are using your app, Tim, will be able to put in data from the ground and that will all mm -hmm. feed into a bigger, con more contextualised picture. Is that the... Yeah, so here on our farm we have here all of our field boundaries. So that's usually like the land registry boundaries that we bring in. So that's my red line boundary. That's what I own. Then, like I mentioned at the beginning, we bring in the RPA data, the OS data, and then we match that with the satellite data. So all of a sudden, me as the farm, on the farm, I can see, okay, that information saying, this is when I last plowed the field and this is the crop. The beauty or the bit that, actually, Donna, we need to have a chat about this, but is if the satellite data says, oh, Tim, that looks like it's a wheat field. And I go, it's not actually a wheat field, it's a barley. I can update that on my land app account. And that data could flow back into the engine that's suggesting what it thinks that the land use is. So it becomes a training data set to increase the quality of the predictions of the satellite data. So it kind of like we take the, the data becomes yeah. available to the farmer to interface with and they can do good stuff. And that, that's useful as a training data. Set. And, and the bit that I think is exciting to go next is then once I've got a concept of my land, my baseline, I as the farm want to design my future. So, oh, my gosh, you know, that piece of the farm is really not climate resilient. It's very dry. Or it stays very wet. And here are my designs as to what I'm going to do to improve the quality of that land. And then the satellite data can track the change in the delivery of that project so it can monitor that I'm delivering maybe what I'm being funded to deliver by the water company, the government, the food retailer. 
So we also help farmers future design and then the earth observation data tracks that change over time. Yeah, I'd like to just come in briefly there on yeah. that one, Tim. I think that's really interesting because one of the projects that we're trying to run forward with another UK partner is this absolute recognition that, um, you know, with machine learning, it's only rubbish in, rubbish out. So how do we how do we make sure we've got that expertly sourced information to create those training data models? So we're looking at how we can retrain some of our surveyors to support some of that, that data collection activity, but also working with um, other experts in the field to, to create a national repository that enables the uploading of, of expertly sourced training data packages. And then also to offer that as a verification process as well going forward for machine learning models. That's really interesting. Tim, just very quickly, I don't want to spend too much time on it because we did a whole episode about digital twins and it's such a fascinating concept. Mm. But I know you've done work with with Sainsbury's, haven't you? Mm. And I'm just kind of, Mm -hmm. I'd just like you to just tell us a little bit about how that worked in relation to the digital twin idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so, um, what's happened as a pressure that's in the market there's a thing called the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures. So it's like a reporting framework that corporates need to use to disclose their impact in nature. So if you imagine your Sainsbury's, and there are all the farms that supply that you, this reporting framework now requires you to start to disclose how you're interfacing with nature through your suppliers. And you know most food retailers don't have that granular data as to exactly which field did what food come from. And is that farm you know, accidentally polluting the river system because they've got no buffer strips next to the river. So what what Sainsbury's wanted and some of the others that we're we're speaking to as well is that digital transparency of their supply chain that allows them to aggregate that data, track each of the farmer's quantity of biodiversity on the farm. So we can do the 30 by 30. So what's land sharing and what's land sparing for biodiversity or nature on the farm? And then same reason others they get the aggregate view in our natural capital dashboard so they go across your entire portfolio this is the percentage of land that's you know in wildflower meadows and woodland and this and everything else and they can use that to report to their board to their shareholders and customers and their regulators so Sainsbury's can say okay well actually do you know what we do know our impact in nature this is exactly what it is and as the farmer updates it on the land app so that data updates in their dashboard, and so it can also go up to the regulators. So they get like live transparency on their supply chain without having to really do anything because they're data consumers and the farmers are data producers. But the point being that this is a digital twin, so this is all done virtually all digital, rather yeah. than on the land. So you can you can, you can correct. Yeah, got it, got it, and, um, and not paper. And exactly, we should talk a little bit about data then in that case, not paper, but data. How easy is it, Donna, to access all this data? And, to, and you, you know, you talked about making, you know, retraining people and making models. Mm-hmm. How easy is that, getting access to all this data and uh, getting people to understand it? It's hard, I think, um, is the honest answer to that, Dallas. The, um, so um, Ordnance Survey has, you know, it has open data sets um, and it has a data hub and you know, application interface feeds that people can access, you know, you know, openly online, etc. But where it starts becoming really, really difficult is when you start to pull in from these other sort of data information silos like the Earth Observation Community. So we did a test quite recently with the UK Space Agency of Space for Climate, where we took some of the heat data that comes from Landsat satellites, um, which is held by the National Centre of Earth Observation. It's, and this data has been around for 30 years and we tested it with our customers say, right, this data has got a lot of intelligence around, you know, the heat distribution of the city. Is it of use to you? Is it of interest? And can you use it? And a lot of our customers, you know, we've got over 5,000 customers and, and many of them declared climate emergencies. 
A said, yeah, we'd like to use the data, but B, we have no idea how to interpret it and we have no idea how to access it. So we're exploring with these sort of centres of how we can actually pull the data across into formats that people can use, but also make sure that insight can be used with OS map data so that they can start answering some of these core questions, you know, in terms of, you know, where do I need to put these interventions in place? What happens if I do this to this site over here? Does it make a change? It's really, really hard because these two worlds of Earth observation and geospatial data have sort of grown up separately mm. and we need to start bringing them together. And that's going to be the challenge. That's a, Christy, as, from an education point of view, you're a lecturer, you're an academic. How easy is it to get people to understand this and embrace it and get it to move forward? Yeah, I, I agree with Don about about the difficulties in, uh, in, in getting data and getting the right data. Because data is not difficult to get per se. So there are like uh, platforms where you can get, but... But people to know about it. Even. That's I a mean, point. Yeah. That's a point. To understand which type of data do, do I need for my purposes. Yeah. Do I need, I don't know, public data or do I need commercial data, which is just at higher resolution. And then once I have the data, uh, data is just data. I need to process this data to get this information. So we were, we were talking about this fascinating land uh, uh, cover maps. Uh, how can I, which data do I need to use to figure out whether the tree that we see out from the window there is a pine tree or it's a, um, I don't know, birch, whatever. Mm -hmm. So uh, for that, we need, we need to educate people in, uh, uh, in understanding this. So you need this data, you need this processing, or you need these products. So those companies are giving you these products and mapping the landscape, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I say data is there. Uh, processing is there, we got AI, whatever. How to uh, make the user understand which type of data, this is a role that companies such as the Catapult, Ordinary Survey, UK Space Agency, uh, we are here for that. So we, we need to educate to educate the, the users. This is an open question for anyone. Is, is that challenging from where, you, where you're standing or sitting? Is that a challenge to get this information across to companies? And I think from, yeah, from my point of view, Dallas, it's, it's about making it simple for people. They don't want to know the science necessarily. They don't want to have to dig into all of the, the processing of it. They just want the yes. answer to their questions. So how can we make that as simple as possible? And that's, that's some of the things we're exploring at the moment, like you say, with, with the catapult, with UK Space Agency. You know, you talk to people about space as a general topic. People mm. in the street haven't heard of Earth observation and and geospatial data you know this yeah. is but they use it all the time but they use it all know? the time that's the thing it's, yeah, make, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. like it's yeah. like making making that connection is um mm. yeah i don't know are we doing a good enough job educating i suppose is no the, i don't think we've from my perspective you know and i've been in this industry for a ridiculous amount of years you know we talk, tend to talk technical to technical it's the yeah. same as space we talk space to space yeah what we're not very good at is is that um, interfacing with the general public and saying actually this this is what this means to you so people like Uber and people like that, you know, when you're, when you're walking, Google Maps, et cetera, this is using space all the time. The technology in your phone is using space all the time. People just don't realise that. So how do we make this into a way that people can, they don't have to understand the science. They just need to understand, you know, how they're using these Yeah, things. and the power of the tools, I suppose, as well. Yeah, can yeah, I, yeah. I mean, in terms of sustainability, it's such a broad topic, sustainability. I know it covers lots of different, lots of different things we, we sort of touched on. Is what, what we do in space, is that going to be the the most helpful tool we have. It just maybe you could talk us about the power of it, perhaps, and just how fundamental it is. I think none of this would have started without space, <laughs> personally. You know, it, we, you know, this is this is why we've got the whole environmental movement, isn't it? Because when they first looked back at, at the Earth, 
from space, people realise how standing back from the canvas, the isn't it? I mean, we've always kind of looked mm. up. You know, you can sort of the, the further away from the canvas, the more the more clear it becomes. Yeah, but it's fundamental. So sustainability and uh, and Earth observation are so much linked. So. Yeah. We, we can see the you know the, the whole world actually there are some uh, some projects uh, like in ease and other places that they're creating a digital twin of the whole earth so which is like how it's probably it's more on on the earth science so how winds are moving how oceans are, are warming so and we can link to link all of these to sustainability issues right atmospheric atmosphere itself so we can see the atmospheric level can we reach net zero by 2050 how do how do we understand that Mm. without observation. So with carbon accounting techniques and so on. So that's why uh, this sort of data is really fundamental in, in tackling the challenges that we have right now. Mm. Let's talk a little bit about collaboration. You all work in, well, I suppose, yeah, you all work in sort of different bits of the industry, but do you all talk to each other and is are, are people talking to each other enough, do you think? It's a good question. I mean, I, I, mean, I talk to people all the time and it's really interesting that you know you keep on unpicking other areas where they all need to be engaged i think from you know we do need to collaborate much more closely i think in terms of you know driving this forward because it is going to hit us so fast the climate change you know issues that we do have to collaborate we don't have time for everybody to go off in their own little silos and their own research projects we need to work together to really drive these things forward and that's one of the reasons why we've got this big sort of international piece going on with the supply chain data partnership, because we recognise that we've got to do these things at pace, we've got to do these things globally. But um, but yeah, we work together with the satellite applications, Catapult, you know, Tim is the next um, geovation startup, you know, which is an ordnance survey um, innovation hub, you know, so we, we do collaborate on that sort of basis. But I think there's, there is room for so much more, particularly from a government-led point of view. Well, I was about, to, I was, yeah, I was going to touch on that. I was going to ask about sort of governments, you know, without being getting mm. too party political. Are we doing enough? I mean, obviously, we had the national space strategy that came out last year. Is that enough? Has that changed attitudes? Do you think? I think what what I'm what I'm definitely seeing is um, as the pressure mounts, as, as Donna and Kristen says, there's much more openness to collaboration. I think that's a really nice thing. I think maybe previously it was you know competition was the way of business, and I think now it's collaboration is the way of business. And we're definitely seeing that DEFRA or government generally are much more open-minded in terms of how they solve the problem. They kind of change their orientation from leave it to us, we'll work it out to, you know what, we don't know really what we're doing. Can you guys share and can we do this together? And I think COVID really helped that. You know, the fact that we all started to communicate so readily through COVID online, I think it's massively accelerated the collaborative relationship of a lot of companies and organizations. So I think we, we, there's a massive transition. And I think the point that Christian was making in terms of desertification and the d- degradation of our natural ecosystems, it's only going to be satellite data that highlights to us as people yeah. on a heartfelt level what's happening. And it, it kind of, I think that view draws people towards how do we solve this problem en masse because we're all in it together. So I, I think collaboration is now kind of the way of the world. And I think that's how we're going to solve these problems. Gosh, there. that's really it's really counterintuitive the idea that covid which was all about keeping your distance from people actually in a strange way kind of brought people together and made us Mm. think about communication and how we do that and maybe had the benefit and how fragile we are yes exactly i agree with tim i think i think actually the ironic thing about covid is it did make us work more collaboratively more smarter so so some of the stuff that we've been doing in the international space 
I don't think we could have done it without COVID because we now all have the same tool sets to actually talk to each other on a regular basis. Um, you know, Tim and I, you know, we rarely meet face to face, but we, we talk, you know, on a fairly regular basis like this. So, you know, it enables us to do a lot more, I think, because we're more used to it. Well, again, it's, you know, it was it was the technology that we're talking about, things like, you know, communication platforms like Zoom and, and everything else are just amazing. Actually, I just want to talk a little bit more about well, it. forced innovation. Well, yeah. exactly. Wars and pandemics and that kind of stuff tends to force innovation, um, which is, that's a, well, that's a whole other subject. Let's just talk about technology. How good is the technology now? Maybe you could give us a little overview about what your thoughts are on that and, and how good is it going to get? And then I want to talk a little bit about how AI and machine learning can help us even further. I think the technology that we have right now is uh, in terms of remote sensing and earth observation is is pretty good. Mm. So we do have, as Donna was mentioning, thousands of satellites right now flying uh, yeah. above us. So we can we can spot every point on Earth like almost almost instantly. So the the technology is there. It's uh, and it's improving. It's improving in terms of, for example how fine we can see something. So this is also called resolution. So how... Well, just give for our listeners, what, what's the kind of best resolution one can get now? Yeah, or, we can get... We? Yeah, in the, in the civil domain, uh, we can get up to around 20 centimetre. So that means that, I don't know, our table is two metres by a metre. So this is, this is like uh, six pixels, right? So we can see my, my ideally, <laughs> uh, this, this tower, right? Mm. So uh, from space. Yeah. So from eight and six, 800 kilometers. So that's impressive, right? <laughs> so the, the technology is there and is improving. And this is super good. That's why we, we, are, we are having all these applications and we, we are able to, um, to, to, to do what we are doing. So uh, that, that's, that's amazing. You mentioned, this, you mentioned civilians. So presumably the military have, can go even below deeper. that. Yeah, yeah. This is, this is regulated in some countries like the US, yeah. the use of civil versus versus military. So yeah, here we are covering civil, uh, civil missions. And as Donna said, of course, it looks across various bits of the spectrum. So it's not just the visible spectrum. Of course, we can learn so much more from yeah, we can other see, parts. Of the yeah, exactly. Spectrum. We can see day and night. So there are different technologies here, like Google Maps. She, she was mentioned, Donna was mentioning this is, this is using uh, what is called optical earth observations. So uh, visible spectrum and, and beyond. But we can use also the microwave domain and the radar domain, which is a, a, just a completely different technology that is able to penetrate to, through clouds. Mm -hmm. So we can see, if, even if there is a cloud, we can see what's, what's happening in there. And also uh, it's solar independent, so we can see day and night. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are the two main technologies, right? And they can both deliver data with that precision. So 20, 20 centimeters. And what's, I mean, is there a kind of, an end goal is like, okay, we want to get even more resolution and we want it to be in real time. Like what's the, what's the kind of ideal for, for it depends on your Donna, use for case, you guys? Dallas, really, you know, it depends on what you want to do because these things cost, right? So, so it depends on what you actually need to use it for. And unfortunately yeah. in places like the UK, we're very cloudy. So one of the things we wanted to use um, the satellite data for was to see whether or not we could identify pollution from space. You know, and unfortunately, a lot of these pollution events like sewer outfall events happen when it's very cloudy. So you have to use a different blend of technologies, not just the optical parts of, a, of the satellites. You can use, you know, IOTs, but also you can use the different sensors as well to start tracing these things through. And that's where your predictive models come in play as well, because you can't always see everything from space that you want to see. So we got 
this great technology. We get this wonderful data that allows us to make all kinds of predictions. It allows us to see change. It allows us to change our behavior. I'm interested in attitudes of land users to this. I mean, perhaps land users whereby sustainability hadn't been, you know, a priority. What are the attitudes like? Are we seeing a kind of a big change? Is there a, a direction of travel that you're optimistic about? I, I think what technology and data does, it connects dots that were probably disparate. It kind of sheds light on what was otherwise a very opaque system. So all of a sudden, it's actually easier for you to go, well, as an example, a project we're working on with a couple of the water companies is they're fed up of having to pay money to get agrochemicals and sediment out of the water, out of the drinking water. But with satellite data, you can very easily go, okay, well, where are the farms through this priority catchment that are plowing close to the river's edge, or they haven't got a riparian buffer along the river edge. You know, because we're in a very fortunate position in Land App, we've got, you know, over 8 million hectares of land has been mapped on the software. So we can very easily go, oh, an intervention should happen here. And it's highly probable that farm has already been mapped on the Land App, so we can just notify that farmer. Oh, by the way, did you know you actually could get access to £3,000 a year if you just did this thing? And I think that's the bit that I'm excited about, is like, where it was really hard to connect dots Tech yeah. and data is making it super easy. And that means a digital a conversation can happen and a transaction, ideally, the farmer get funded, which is my point about farmers not being fairly remunerated. It bridges that gap, it solves that problem. And that's where you can like jump towards better and everyone benefits. So kind of your question, Dallas, about the attitudes. I think farmers are excited about the prospect of actually participating in a system where before they were very isolated from it. So tech yeah. and data is kind of giving them a, a network and a conversation, which fundamentally leads to cash income that helps them run their business. And keep and, and Donna, as you said before, the simpler the better, the more presumably mm. the more people are going to be um, won over by this. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, and the other thing we shouldn't forget is, of course, farmers use position navigation and timing for a lot of the the devices on the tractors and how to put you know, the fertilizer on stuff like that. So that again really helps them use you know space to really increase efficiencies. And again, that technology tends to be hidden. I mean, farmers are actually really astute when it comes to, to tech, but um, but we, we shouldn't forget that that is all part of the space community as well. Yeah, and and some of these is also regulated. So uh, if a farmer is producing a specific product uh, that needs a certain certification. Uh, sometimes we got this certification uh, more in other countries, maybe, but like uh, where there is no deforestation, right, ha- happening in, in, your, in your farm. You're, pro- you're producing some cacao and you need to certify that your cacao is like uh, ethically good, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, those are certification that needs some data to verify that that farm or that field is um, is sustainable, so is ethically is ethically behaving good from an environmental point of view, and that's why we have we have, we have this data. So as a, as a user, so as a as a as a researcher also that provides this type of data, I really hope that uh, our world will get better yeah. because this data will tell us what's going on, right? And uh, and. Uh, through the certification and other government uh, um, laws, we will be able to apply this for a, for a better world. At the end, this is our purpose. All three of you sound really, really optimistic. I'm just, I'm curious, what, what are the big problems that we need to be working on now? What, what are the, the things that keep you awake at night or annoy you or you worry about? 
Speed and scale. Speed and scale, yeah. <laughs> are the two yeah. things that worry me. Yeah, As because ever. we've got a lot, loads and loads of projects, um, not just in ordinance area, but across everything, you know, academia, you know, various government departments, et cetera, et cetera, all doing bits of it. But actually we need to do all this, you know, it comes back to that collaboration piece. Yeah. We need to have this mentality whereby we think, well, actually, let's not just do it over in these little silos and pockets over here. Let's all work on it together and get it out there quickly, but at the scale we need to do it. Because nature doesn't stop at boundaries. Well, I know we try and force it to, but you know, but climate's not going to stop at boundaries and things like that. So, so we need to really work collaboratively as quickly as possible to try and address some of these core challenges. But get that understanding, like Tim says, you know, get that visibility of what's going on. Make sure people can act and respond, and you know, and make sure we we have the sustainable place going forward. And Tim, as a as a long time farmer, as someone who's grown up with this, who's 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 seen this firsthand. Are you optimistic about the future? Are you? Do you look at what you're what you're doing and go? Actually, you know, actually, we've we can really solve this. We can fix this using this new tech. And yeah, hundred percent. I think there is it's a hundred percent guaranteed that the world is going to be a better place in a very short space of time. I have absolutely no doubt about it because it's just it's we all care about it, right? Like we're humans. We live on this planet. We care about each other. It's going to be good. The, the, there are hurdles to jump through. So I'm 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 like hundred percent certain that we're going to a better world. Um, there's stuff we could get wrong and we might not, but if we're good people and we collaborate and we're open, we're, we're going to be fine. But the thing that I think is the most important piece, which um, Donna just actually touched on, is we need delivery of stuff happening in the real world. Otherwise, it's all the same, right? So, so, so you need people to do stuff. And people are kind and they are philanthropic and they will do stuff. But most land-based businesses are businesses and there's an opportunity cost in transition. So if we're going to stop desertification and we're going to, you know, we we need to make sure funding is becoming available to people who own land to do the right thing in the right place. And then nature yeah. tends to take control of it. Once you get the hydrological cycle working again, nature will do its thing, right? That doesn't cost humans money. It doesn't cost pound coins. Nature does it. But we need to set the conditions up so that nature can take control, hence permaculture and regenerative agriculture, those kind of system thinking approaches. But we need to fund land managers to do the right thing in the right place. There's complexity I can get into, which is all about you need a digital baseline of what you have. Yeah. You need a digital design of where you're going to go. That could be an auto-suggested intervention based on AI. And we're doing some of that stuff already. But then then it's easy. And then if you get if the farmer gets funded to do that and they can be monitored to ensure they are delivering it, you don't get bad actors. Yeah. The outcome's inevitable and that's good. So financial incentives, visibility of data, which is what the technology gives us, and of course education, getting people to know that all this stuff exists and it's there seems to be the order of the day yeah completely agree to tim's point around we need the investment into the land and for the landowners so we've been doing some projects with natural england actually um and looking how we can do landscape scale restoration and a lot of it is is based around you know that visibility for the investor because there's so much greenwash going on that investors have lost confidence in actually nature-based restoration yeah just tell us what that means what it is yeah, so essentially, so if you've got a piece of land, it's, it's very similar to what Tim's doing with the, with the farming. So if you've got a large parcel of land that's degraded, like peatland, for example, you know, you need large scale investment to get that peatland back to a carbon sink. Right. To, to make sure it's absorbing carbon back into the land, essentially, and locking it yeah. down. But to do that, you need large scale investment. You know, it's not, you're not talking, you know, small fry here. So we've been looking at how we can do that at landscape scale to give, you know, the investors the confidence in what they want to pay for. So we've been working with um, Natural England to really understand, okay, well, how do you baseline a site like Tim's saying? You know, wh- how do you know what's there now? 
Okay, so that's what the baseline is. It's telling you what says now. You can then do calculations about well, how, what happens if I restore this? What do I get to in terms of my carbon credits? And then um, you get the investor to buy into that. But you, you need to give them the visibility and the confidence of what they're investing in is going in the right direction. So it's all about this visibility, about that monitoring process. And you need to, to enable the investor to have the same view as the landowner and the restorer, because otherwise they have no confidence or no understanding of what's going on on the site. And these things take a long time. You know, they can be between 30 and 50 years of investments. You know, so you've got to have confidence that these things are happening. So that's some of the stuff that we've been working on. Tim and Donna, thank you very, very much indeed for, for stopping by and, and, and chatting. Christian as well, thank you very much for being here. I feel optimistic. And I, you, you've, all three of you sound very optimistic about it. I mean, it's a, sustainability is a massive, massive global issue that doesn't respect boundaries. But I, I, you know, hopefully with the technology we have, we can certainly address it. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you for your company. To hear future episodes of In Orbit, be sure to subscribe on your favourite podcast app. And to find out more about how space is empowering industries between episodes, you can visit the Catapult website or join them on Twitter, LinkedIn or Facebook. <laughs>